This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. My name is Ted Osius. I was U.S. Ambassador to Vietnam from 2014 to 2017. Recently, I published a book called Nothing is Impossible, America's Reconciliation with Vietnam, basically because I'd spent many, many years in and out of Vietnam, almost 30 years uh, as a diplomat and in business. And I really felt like I had stories to tell. Uh, so I, I, my story and Vietnam's story are somewhat intertwined. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you, Ambassador. Nothing is impossible. It reminded me so much of a book I read as a young man in the Marines. Um, it was a book that was sort of led to young Marines, um, written by Senator John F. Kennedy, called Profiles and Courage. And in Profiles and Courage, it profiled eight senators uh, that went against their party's wishes, the constituents that they represented, um, about the Civil War. And it talked about the courage that, that's needed to do things that are sometimes unpopular. And, I've, and I feel like when I read the book, um, your profiles of Senators John McCain, John Kerry, all of those things reminded me so much about the framework of, of the book that was written by John F. Kennedy. So thank you so much for coming on, Ambassador. Today, I am honored to, you know, to be sitting here and, and, and having a conversation with you. And thank you for that question. Uh, I, I feel I'm glad that that my book resonated in that way. I feel that the people I've written about in Nothing is Impossible did display that extraordinary courage that you're talking about, because it was not a popular thing to talk about bringing the United States and its former enemy, Vietnam, closer together. Now, the heroes I wrote about, I wrote about, as you mentioned, a Democrat and a Republican, John Kerry and John McCain. And I also wrote about uh, President Bill Clinton and Ambassador Pete Peterson, the first U.S. ambassador to Vietnam. Those are the Americans, and they I, I tell their stories because I think they took risks and they were very brave to bring our two countries together. But I also tried to tell the stories of some very brave Vietnamese. Uh, counterparts, very yeah. brave Vietnamese counterparts. Nguyen Ca Tac is one. Le Van Bang, the first Vietnamese ambassador to the United States, is another. Bui Te Zang, who's a party member, still very active in trying to bring our two countries together, which he's been doing for, for many, many years. A guy named Nguyen Vu Tu, uh, a brave diplomat. He was never ambassador to the United States, but he was ambassador to Korea and the Philippines. But very for much of his career, he, he worked hard to bring our countries together. Uh, and Hakim Ngop, who was um, 
vice foreign minister when I was in Vietnam and later ambassador to the United States. And then people who had no official titles at, at all. Uh, Tao Nguyen Griffiths, who is a friend, but who really has devoted her life to doing what she can to bring the two countries together. I feel like these stories are, are good to tell, uh, to remind people that courage is something that matters. You can get stuff done if you care enough and if you're willing to take risks. I agree with that. Um, you know, having you on the podcast is sort of a, a, a tricky thing for me too, because once we introduce this word reconciliation into the formula, it becomes really tricky. But to quote, to really paraphrase Viet Thanh Nguyen, um, if you're not pissing off both sides of the, the, the party, then you're not doing it right. And so I live sort of with that mantra sometimes. Um, you got to get you got to get some people riled up. Um, and I hope this question doesn't rile people up too much. But I thought long and hard about this. How do I ask you the question? Because you're the the first person who's not Vietnamese uh, to come on the podcast and for me to ask this question. But I think because you have a 30 year history with Vietnam. You spent more time in Vietnam than some of our parents did growing up and, you know, being part of that world, but leaving at, you know, in their mid twenties and, and, and whatnot. So I think that, and ask you this question, I think you are qualified to, to answer a question. What does it mean to be Vietnamese today? And you might not be answering it from a Vietnamese perspective as a Vietnamese person, but somebody who spent 30 years in the country, I think I, I'm allowed to ask that question to you, right? Absolutely. Um, no, I'm, I'm pleased and proud to answer that question. First, Viet Thanh Nguyen is my favorite writer. Uh, I'm, I'm a, you know, diehard fan. I've read pretty much everything he's written, and not just his books, but his essays. I, I find his take on some of these challenges to be fascinating and provocative. And I do think it's good sometimes to make sure you're, you're pissing off people on on both sides. But you asked what it is to be Vietnamese. And I, I was surpri surprised and happy when a former president of Vietnam, Trung Tan Sang, told me he thought I was half Vietnamese. And I, wondered, I thought about, you know, why did he say this? Well, it's because I made a, a big effort to, to learn the Vietnamese language. Spent a lot of time in my, in my career in Vietnam. And I made a really big effort to learn everything I could about Vietnam's culture and its history. And then I wrote about a lot of that because I thought it was really important for people who didn't understand Vietnam to try to understand a little bit about what it is to be a Vietnamese. And I think it's a mixture of that culture and language and history that has made Vietnamese uniquely Vietnamese. People will talk about Vietnamese nationalism, which is, I think, a very powerful force. But what does that consist of? It consists of being proud of that culture and language and history and what it is to be uniquely Vietnamese. So I, you know, I, I, I take it as the highest compliment to be thought of as at least part Vietnamese. Thank you for that answer, Ambassador. With that answer, I would like to ask you if I can transition to calling you from ambassador to Ted? I'd love that. I'm always happy when, 
when I'm called Angted. I, <laughs> when I'm called Om or Ngai or something, it feels very distant. And when I'm called Ang, I love it. Wonderful. Uh, so Angted, I want to know what inspired you to gravitate to the Vietnamese culture? So it was pretty simple. Um, it was early in my career and I thought I would love to go as a diplomat to a place where we had a really tough history and see if we can't start something new. And so in 1995, I asked to be one of the first Americans assigned to the new embassy in Hanoi because I thought, well, we can start, we can build a foundation for a different kind of relationship between the United States and Vietnam from the one we had in the past. And uh, I was lucky I had that opportunity to go as one of the the first American diplomats and then to uh, to top it off, to be able to go and open up the U.S. consulate in Saigon. That was huge. I loved being in Hanoi and opening up the embassy. And then I loved going to Saigon and and opening up the consulate. And then for me, it was really a dream come true to be able to go back as ambassador many years later, because by then I had fallen in love with Vietnam. And I thought, and I think that I'll, I'll back up. I think the key was the language because I'd spent 10 months doing nothing but studying the Vietnamese language and its culture. And I found that everywhere I went because we were, I was able to talk with people, the, the doors were open and I love to ride a bike and I used to ride my bike all over the, the, the place. And so it was easy to, people found it easy to talk to me. They might be surprised at someone who looks like, like I do would speak Vietnamese, but they could tell that I would, I was accessible because I was on a bike. I wasn't in a limousine. I wasn't, you know, passing through. I was there to engage and to learn. And, uh, oh, it was, it was such a privilege to be there early on. And then it was such a privilege to return. It's almost like, don't we have that as a prerequisite to go into countries as an ambassador or anybody in the foreign service, right? I, it, well, it isn't always. Yes. Um, it isn't. There are a lot of people who go overseas without basic knowledge of a country or, or its language. I, I think in those early years in Vietnam, you really needed to speak Vietnamese to be able to communicate with officials, to be able to communicate with people. It's probably easier now. So many people speak English now. It's probably a lot easier to travel around Vietnam nowadays just using English. But then it wasn't. You, I needed my Vietnamese, and I needed it in meetings, and I needed it when I stopped by the side of the road to buy some food. I needed it on a daily basis. And that turned out to be a huge key to unlock what it is to be Vietnamese and to to understand Vietnam a bit. You know, so many of the people of my generation, Vietnamese Americans um, in their 40s, um, there's a lot of us that don't understand how that embargo was lifted. Like the things that happened, you know, and I was researching that like throughout the 2021 year, just randomly on my, because I, you know, as I was doing this work, I didn't know really why the embargo was lifted, why has become such a, a hub for business. But when we start to dig back, we realize that there are these key plots. And now I'm hearing that you came in 1995, which is 
now like such a, a key moment to be in Vietnam at the time that you were and I know that you really go into detail you go into really deep and rich detail in the book in the opening to explain this but can you give me just a very brief history of that first few sort of um oh uh like a breakdown of 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 the history of that well first of all the united states had never not won a war and you know when when saigon fell in 1975 it was pretty clear the united states had not won and so it was a bitter experience for a lot of americans to think that so much blood and treasure had been devoted to this cause and it hadn't worked out so there were many people who did not want anything to do with vietnam they didn't want to normalize relations they didn't like the regime that was in charge in hanoi and politically it was really tough to touch this subject so there were few efforts made when jimmy carter was president to kind of open up links right. communication links with vietnam but those faltered and then when ronald reagan was president nobody made an effort it was it was the era of rambo and of talking about uh american soldiers being held in tiger cages still being this idea this myth really that there were americans being held against their will in southeast asia and only in in 1991 did two veterans john mccain and john Kerry, decide it was time to move on and to they wanted they needed to prove a negative so that we could move on they needed to prove that there were no americans being held in tiger cages so they set up this uh this select committee senate select committee on pow mia affairs and they did extensive research and went through the the archives and went made multiple trips to vietnam and gradually were able to prove to the satisfaction of everybody but the most extreme believers in this myth that there were no americans being held against their will and that also opened up channels where the two sides began to talk about how could we return the remains of those who America had lost in Vietnam to their families? How could remains be returned and closure be brought to American families? And that was kind of the foundation. And at a certain point, uh, Bill Clinton decided that more progress could be made on that issue if we normalized diplomatic relations than if we continued to be estranged. So there were a number of missions, mostly headed by veterans or folks in veteran affairs uh, that went, who went to Vietnam. And finally, in 1995, against the, the advice of his political advisors, Bill Clinton, who was, who was, by the way, you know, had been criticized as a draft dodger and you know, hadn't served in Vietnam and was vulnerable politically because he was going to be running for a re-election against Bob Dole, who was a war hero and opposed normalization of relations. Bill Clinton decided to go ahead and do it. And he was criticized, but there were also plenty of people who had come to the same conclusion that he had, that we could make more progress on fullest possible accounting if we had relations. And he did it. And in fact, we did make huge progress on that issue of 
full as possible accounting, and a lot of trust was built up during that time. The Vietnamese let us go anywhere we asked on short notice. We said we wanted to follow a lead because there was a, supposedly a sighting of of uh, uh, a POW in, in the north. They'd say, okay, go. And, and there were only uh, very limited exceptions to that rule that they were letting us go anywhere, anytime on a moment's notice. And uh, so it was quite, it was powerful and it built trust. And it was that, that was the foundation on which everything rested. And we, we began to broaden the relationship from that point on, but it was because Bill Clinton had taken a big political risk and gone ahead uh, and, um, and decided it was in America's interest to move forward. Now, for my listeners that just listened to that f few minutes that you just described, I, I want to let everybody know that the first few chapters of the book describes in detail this whole, the mechanics of how that went down. I mean, it's fascinating. And I'm not, I didn't grow up a history. I, I didn't re do a lot of research and I didn't, I just wasn't interested like so many people. And your book really opened my eyes because I've been going back to Vietnam for 20 years and I always wondered how the skyscrapers and all the concrete and steel and modernization, where did that come from? As I'm doing more of this work, I'm so glad that a book like Nothing is Impossible is out there so we can understand that there's so much energy that's required to get to this, to where we are today. I'm, I'm happy that you say that. That is why I felt it was important to write this book, to tell this story that I'd had the privilege to witness up close. I'd gotten to know John McCain well, and I'd gotten to know John Kerry, and I saw the risks they took, and I took them around the country back in the mid-90s, and then got to see them again when I, when I became ambassador. And I felt those, those stories and the stories of brave Vietnamese who took these big steps were critical. And you, you mentioned the big skyscrapers. A lot changed from the mid-90s to the time I returned in 2014 as ambassador. And the biggest thing that changed was Vietnam became so much more prosperous. And I try in the, in the book to tell the story of how that happened. The, a huge decision, I think, was made to engage Vietnam in a bilateral trade agreement, which Pete Peterson first ambassador pursued very zealously and was finally concluded in, a, in uh, about 2002. And that really ushered Vietnam into the world economy because it, after the bilateral trade agreement was signed, it joined the World Trade Organization and the economy just kept opening up. So by 2008, Vietnam was a favorite of foreign investors and huge number of investors came and made the country, helped make the country prosperous. Now it's, it's a country filled with really industrious, hardworking people. So you say, you know, well, it was those foreigners who made it prosperous. No, it was the Vietnamese people who worked their tails off and made it prosperous. But by the time I went back in 2014, it was transformed. It was such a different country. It had gone from being the poorest country in Asia or the second poorest country in Asia to this very open economy, rapid growth year after year of very high growth. And Vietnamese had gone from being kind of closed off to the world and impoverished to wide open to the world, uh, engaged fully with everything that was happening in the world. And, uh, you know, 
rapidly growing lower middle income country, but headed for uh, uh, wealthier status at a very rapid clip. Before we get into um, some other uh, wonderful developments uh, in, during your time, I want to know some basic things because I've always been curious about ambassadors and what they do on a day to day or what their main job is to do. Like a lay person like me, I, I always wonder what, what, it, what, it, what actually takes place in your day to day and what, you, what are you tasked to do? Well, the basic job, as I interpret it, is to make friends for the United States. I mean, what you do as ambassadors, you figure out where American interests and the interests of the country to which you're accredited, in my case, Vietnam, where they intersect. So where you can actually do things together to build trust and to move a relationship forward. Probably on a daily basis, I spend about half my time doing outreach. You know, some way or another connecting with the Vietnamese people, uh, some way or another connecting with Vietnamese leadership. And then about a quarter of my time on managing the embassy, it was a big embassy, uh, that time it was about 900 people in the mission overall. And then about a quarter of the time on policy, and that's usually working with Washington um, or working with Vietnamese counterparts to sort out policy challenges. Um, so the part I like best is what took the most amount of time, which is the outreach. I think it's really fun to engage, um, whether it's in the media or preferably face-to-face. -face. And so when I could go and engage with students, that was my to absolute favorite thing to do. When I could engage with students, you know, and ha have there be some give and take, I'd learn a lot. Maybe I'd be able to share some of the ideas that the United States had about moving forward. And all those things built trust. And once you have trust, you can create a partnership, you can do things together and create a partnership. The other thing you do is you make sure that in order to build trust, you show respect. And for me, it was easy to show respect. I had a lot of respect for Vietnam's, as I mentioned, history, language, and culture. And when I showed respect for those aspects of what it is to be Vietnamese, the doors were open. People were ready to engage. And I think that's a, a simple lesson, but one really worth learning. You know, I always bring this back up. The young uh, Vietnamese and in, in America and the diaspora, we're constantly being challenged by our, you know, the grownups and the, the people who've lived through the war. And again, the big R word, affiliation, such a bad word. But then you think about like these advanced parties that, you know, from the United States, like yourself and these teams of hundreds of people that have worked to normalize things for Vietnam and the U.S. How do we communicate or is it even worth our time as a young Vietnamese generations in America to talk to our parents or should we just let it go? Because they're, they've gone through pain. I recognize the pain, but at the same time, I also recognize the duality of me being a modern Vietnamese, having to connect with my motherland, despite what my parents might feel. Well, I think the reality is some people have been through so much pain that they're not going to be open to talk, talking about reconciliation. My very first visit to Orange County, I gave a talk in front of several hundred 
Vietnamese Americans, and at the end of the talk, I was with members of Congress and Ed Royce said, oh, good job, Ambassador. And I, you know, I was feeling good about it. I'd spoken in Vietnamese and in English. And I thought, well, I've made, I've made some, some headway here. But a, a man came up to me and he was, he was a good bit older than I. I, I. I would guess maybe he was 40 when Saigon fell. So he'd spent half his life defending a country that no longer existed. He'd been loyal to a flag that no longer flew over what had been his country. And he grabbed me by the lapels and he said, Ambassador, this is Bang Cheng Viet, he said, Ambassador, I spent 11 years in a re-education camp. And I said, I'm so sorry, is there, is there anything I, I can do? And he said it again, Ambassador, I spent 11 years in a re-education camp. And I, I wasn't sure what he wanted. And I, I said again, you know, I, I'm the US ambassador. Is there anything I can do for you? He said, ambassador, I spent 11 years in a re-education camp. And it suddenly dawned on me. He wanted that time back. He, he, wanted, he wanted to turn back time and not lose 11 years of his life. And I, of course, I couldn't do that. And so, but it was clear to me, and it stays with me to this day, that for him, reconciliation wasn't possible. And I had to respect that. Mm. I have to respect that some people suffered just too much to be able to talk about reconciliation. And so I do, I respect that. But I think there are many people, probably many more, who do think it's time to reconcile. It's time to move forward. And I wanted to honor their wishes as well, especially folks your age, uh, you know, those who, who believe that maybe there can be a different kind of relationship with Vietnam. And so when I've been asked, well, you know, for those of us who suffered terribly, what can we do? I've, I always say, think about the future. Think about ways that you can do what you can do to, to help ensure that young Vietnamese don't face the kind of pain and hardship that their parents or grandparents faced. And so I've urged people to invest in education. Think about education, educating that those future generations of Vietnamese so that they can have a, a really different kind of life from what their parents and grandparents had. When I hear about being grabbed by the lapels, I, I, I'm, it, it rocks me uh, emotionally. Were you scared? Were you afraid that he might get a little bit more violent? And I ask that because that sounds like something that I, you know, we j deal with in our generation um, on a metaphorical level as well as, you know, I, I've never been physically accosted like that. But I mean, that description is the emotional that I feel when I'm discussing this with my uncles. So at, in the moment, feeling this emotional charge, how, do, how did you respond? Was it fearful for you? Like he was going to do something or was it just a man who's just wanting to be heard? I think it's the latter, a man who wanted to be heard and who deserved to be heard. So 
I've been back to Orange County several times, including just a few weeks ago. And people have asked me, do you ever feel afraid yeah. talking with in Orange County? And my answer is no, I've never felt physically afraid. I've never felt that, uh, that I would, I didn't, in fact, I didn't even feel it from that man. I felt he wanted, he needed to be heard. Mm. And so each time I've gone, um, I've tried to make sure people could be heard. And if they were skeptical about my approach, that was okay. If they didn't think reconciliation was the way to go, that is their right. They've been through uh, hardships that I can't, can, can't even really imagine. It takes when, uh, uh, when Tang, uh, Viet Tang to, to describe what that experience is like. It takes a great writer to just even to describe how tough that is. So um, what I've always tried to do is, is listen and try to understand and then bring that understanding to the work that I believe is my calling, which is to see what can be done to move forward with reconciliation. I wrote a whole book about it because I believe it's really tough, but, but really important to do uh, is to engage in that work. And, I've, and the people who have who've engaged in it in my view, are very brave. You mention your involvement with uh, quite a bit, um, and I, from from my readings, I I think you were involved with Fulbright University, right? Yes, yes, yes. I was. I've had the um, the privilege of talking to President Tui and a few of the board people, and uh, it's a phenomenal. It's a phenomenal job that they're doing. And I bring this up because I'm beginning to learn uh, how much cooperation um, sort of on the education side that all of these people and teams of people are doing with the United States and back and forth. And that is sort of like the bedrock. And if we can get that understanding to the older generation that Vietnam is changing from inside, I mean, from deep inside that educational realm, there's real change there, but it takes time. And can you tell me about your experience with the education and the youth of Vietnam? Well, I, I think there's nothing more important when it comes to reconciliation and when it comes to the future of Vietnam than investing in, ed in education. So I was the first Viet I was the first vice president of Fulbright University, the founding vice president of Fulbright University. And I came to that job after having invested a lot of time and energy as, uh, as ambassador. And this started with the visit of General Secretary Nguyen Phu Trong to the United States. And he promised during his visit in 2015 that Fulbright University of Vietnam would be given full academic freedom. It would be an American style university, a Vietnamese university, but with American style principles of academic freedom. And I thought this is really important, especially because it's a Vietnamese university. If you have academic freedom in one Vietnamese university, eventually you're going to have it in right. many Vietnamese universities. And so I thought this was a really important endeavor. And John Kerry was one of the you know, the founding mentors, the kind of uncle 
who helped found uh, uh, Fulbright University of Vietnam, and my friend uh, Tommy Valley, who's now the the chairman of the board of Fulbright, uh, who's been who's devoted his life to reconciliation. Um, they were people I admired and I believed were creating this possibility of really American style education at higher education in Vietnam. So I was really proud to be part of that undertaking, both as ambassador and then as the, the first vice president and the students who came there, you just, just so phenomenal, so inspiring and so determined to make their country better. And to, you know, they were convinced that it was an education, a good education, American style education that would allow them to make the biggest difference in the life of their country. And I think that's true. I, I still think it's true. I, I ended up uh, doing other work after that, but I believe very strongly in the mission of Fulbright University of Vietnam. And I want very much for, for it to succeed. And I hope that, that Americans will continue to support it. Um, and I know that, that uh, the beneficiaries will be the young Vietnamese who have high aspirations for their futures and for their country's future. I talk about Fulbright all the time on this program because uh, it aligns with what I see as, um, as a, a game changer for the youth in Vietnam. At the whole idea of having a liberal arts university is already something that you know goes contrary to the way we think our you know doctors lawyers you know very technical things it it's not it goes the other way and i love the mission of academic freedom because that's the yes. pillar the building blocks of the d word the democracy democracy yes. for the country and it starts there i think that's right and i i you know i think i have we have to give credit to those in the Vietnamese leadership who decided this is a risk worth taking. Now, there are plenty of people in the Vietnamese leadership who are worried about anything that might destabilize society and are obsessed with security. And, you know, Vietnam has had a tough history. And so you can, you can kind of understand this obsession with security. But there were also a lot of leaders who understood that for Vietnam to succeed in this day and age, you have to have innovation. You have to have free exchange of ideas and of information. For the, the Vietnamese young people are very talented and they will succeed in the information age. They'll succeed in the age of the internet economy if they have access to information and to ideas, if they're given the freedom to innovate. And enough people in the leadership understood this to give Fulbright University Vietnam and other universities in Vietnam the space to explore. And as a result, you see this really dynamic, fast-growing internet economy in Vietnam. And I think that gives the great hope that Vietnam will go from being a lower middle-income country to an upper middle-income country quite fast because that growth is so fast, the foreign direct investment is so fast, the possibility of innovation is so great that Vietnam, I believe, will succeed. It's, it's what I, now I work at the U.S. ASEAN Business Council. And when member companies ask me, you know, where are the opportunities? I say, well, among them is Vietnam. It's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a place that I think you can, you can bet will be successful. And 
partly because of the the dynamism and the energy and the talent of its young people. And that leads me to the next uh, point. It's a it's a very I'm again very ignorant in this uh, total picture of where China sits on the business map in relation to Vietnam. But I do know that when I encourage my elders to put a little money or energy or time into Vietnam to think about business, I get the pushback is, well, what about the shadow, uh, being in the shadows of, of China? What is your sort of opinion on all that? Well, China is a factor. But when I look at Vietnam's history, what I see is there were 22 wars against China. It's in the DNA of Vietnamese people to resist domination by China. The, the, the heroes whose names are in, on the street signs in every village and city in Vietnam are Ngo Quyen and Tran Hung Dao, Ba Triu, the Triu the, the, uh, sisters. Um, or the Nobatrio, the, the, the great warrior, and the Haibachung, the, the Trung sisters. So you, you see name after name of people who who became national heroes by fighting right. for Vietnam's independence. I think that's an important factor to remember when people worry about Vietnam being overly influenced by China. I think it's built in for Vietnamese to be independent of not just of China, but of the United States and everybody else. Vietnamese want to make their own destiny, want to choose their own future and don't want anybody else to tell them what it's going to be. But real talk, I have to ask this though. Yeah. Yes, we do value independence, but the money is huge in China. It, we can be, people can be bought. Vietnamese people at all levels can be bought. And that's, I think, a, a big concept that, uh, you know, my uncles and, and parents talk about that the leadership or, you know, government or business people all over Vietnam are easily persuaded with, you know, with big bags of cash. And that is true to a certain extent. There are certainly people who are going to benefit from trade with China, from Chinese investment. There are companies that are doing business with China, which is Vietnam's number one trade partner at this point. But there are many, many people, including many leaders, who want Vietnam to have as many options as possible. So it was Vietnamese leaders who welcomed Vietnam joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the trade agreement that at one point included the United States. Now it's the CPTPP, and it doesn't include the United States. But it is, it is a set of economic options for Vietnam. The, the Vietnamese have now, they're part of multiple trade agreements. They've got a free trade agreement with the, with the Europeans. They're part of the RCEP. They're part of uh, multiple, uh, there's a, they're, I think they're negotiating a free trade agreement with Canada. There are multiple ways right. in which Vietnam is ins ensuring that it has options other than its economy, its economy being dominated by China. And I think that's really important. And that's where the United States comes in, because when the United States is 
provides leadership, including in the economic realm in Asia. We provide strategic options to countries like Vietnam that don't want to be right. owned lock, stock, and barrel by the Chinese. So I think it's incumbent on us to keep exploring those options and keep finding ways to strengthen the ties between Vietnam and the rest of the world. And then in my current job, I'm very much engaged in strengthening the private sector ties between the United States and the 10 ASEAN countries, the 10 countries of Southeast Asia that want to have, want to have stronger ties with the United States. And Ted, you were ambassador from 2014 to 2017, right? Yes. Were yes. there times, I mean, times of like awkward moments um, during those years uh, when you were in service? Uh, like what kind of awkward moments do you mean? There's certainly awkward Cla moments for life of any diplomat. Yes. And yeah, that, that's exactly what I, I wanted to know. And what I mean by that is like, you know, there's interest that the U.S. has and there's, there's interest that the Vietnamese might have. And there's things that how do you fully come to the table and collaborate when things are not really met on both parties. Like you would want something, they would want something. It's not fully there. And then, so there's this awkward middle ground. Are, are there any examples of that? Yeah, I mean, there were lots of things that we wanted in the relationship that took a lot of patience and persistence to get. If you want things to change overnight, then diplomacy is the wrong job. Uh, my view was this was we were part of a long relationship. We wanted we were I, I took the baton from my predecessors and I passed it on to my successors. We were part of uh, a long process of bringing the two countries together. And some things might happen quickly and other things were going to take a really long time. But during the time I was ambassador, the relationship really surged. It really grew probably faster than it at any time, at least any time prior. And we got to be part of that. My team and I got to be, be part of that. We built a certain amount of trust with the leadership when uh, General Secretary Nguyen Phu Trong visited Barack Obama in the White House. And... Uh, came away feeling that he could place some trust in the United States. And then we started moving forward in many parts of the relationship, in the security side of the relationship, in terms of trade. We started doing uh, a lot of collaboration in the environmental field and in public health. And th the public health collaboration actually had built up over time, and, and we were able to strengthen it, and it has continued to this day. So there were, there were moments of frustration. I remember one time I was frustrated at the pace that the security relationship was taking us. You know, we keep making all these overtures. We keep providing all these opportunities and the Vietnamese aren't taking advantage of them. And my staff said, Ambassador, slow down. Just listen to your counterparts. What, what, is, it, what is getting in the way? Understand that and take the time. This isn't going to happen quickly. And so I spent more time understanding what was slowing things down. And then once I better understood, we were able to move things forward. We were able to build trust where trust hadn't existed and move forward. And, and uh, uh, before I left 
office, I had proposed the idea of an aircraft carrier, U.S. aircraft carrier visiting Vietnam, which was, you know, kind of an act of chutzpah because um, aircraft carriers had come to Vietnam before, but they had not come with with, with good intention, or at least, uh, you know, so I was saying, well, we're going to bring 5,000 troops, American troops to Vietnam. They're going to come off an aircraft carrier and visit you in Da Nang, and it's all going to be fine and peaceful. And there had to be trust before right. that could occur. And so it took a while for Vietnam to say yes to that visit, but it did. And there were, the first aircraft carrier visited uh, not long after I, I left. Can I ask you, what do you mean by trust? Because standing is like, what, they're, they're not afraid of the carrier going to bring an attack, but what do you mean by trust? Is it an optics thing? Uh, I think it's more than optics, but optics are part of it because you don't want an aircraft carrier to come and be just a thumb in the eye of the Chinese because the Chinese can inflict pain on Vietnam. They have the ability and they've shown it to inflict great pain on their southern neighbor. And so what the Vietnamese leadership wanted to do, I think, was pace things out, not be provocative, make sure that the, the path had been laid, carefully laid before taking actions that, that uh, could cause difficulty. And so Vietnam's leaders kind of took their time. And then when the time was right, they said, yes, we would welcome an aircraft, uh, aircraft carrier visit by the United States. But that came only after we'd done quite a few things together. And so when I say trust, we'd learned by doing things together that we could trust each other. So we'd had a, a number of uh, visits by something called Pacific Partnership, which is a humanitarian mission uh, involved in human health and humanitarian disaster relief. And uh, uh, military medicine was a, big, as it was a big part of what they did. And they, they came and they brought teams who would build kindergartens and and restore hospitals and clearly humanitarian in nature. And they came year after year and people saw, oh, actually America's military isn't always about blowing things up and killing people. It can do a lot of good. And, the, and we also were able to provide some fast patrol boats and a Coast Guard cutter and materiel to Vietnam that helped Vietnam achieve its goals, which were basically to understand better what was happening in the South China Sea, and um, created the space where we could do something a little bigger, like have a, an aircraft carrier come and visit. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because when I heard you initially say trust, you know, that could mean a lot of different things to the government of Vietnam, the neighbors to the north. And I could see that there's a a soft, not a soft power, but a soft sort of landing with military, which is uh, support. Um, you're just bringing different logistic things that can, you know, through the through the lens of a, of a military uh, move. Yes. Not yes. firepower. It's no. And, and it wasn't even at that time. I think we'd lifted the lethal weapons, the ban on lethal weapons sales. Um, but that had only come after a long period of time. Um, so what we did to build trust were, you know, you kind of start with the easier stuff. Right. And so we started 
after we had built some trust in on the issue of fullest possible accounting back in the mid 90s, we started talking about science and technology cooperation and setting standards, very non-political issues, uh, work on, together on the environment and on public health, again, non-political. And those allowed us to build enough mutual understanding and enough, enough trust that we could start talking a bilateral trade, about a bilateral trade agreement. And we spent a number of years talking about that. Once we had that in place, we could continue to grow the areas where it was possible to do things together, to collaborate. Today, we're doing peacekeeping together. Vietnam is involved in peacekeeping. Uh, the work that's being done on pandemic response is collaborative work and data and information are shared in real time. The work that's being done to deal with the challenge of climate change, a global issue, uh, not just a bilateral issue, that involves sharing information, scientific information, and uh, working together in real time on a big challenge that we both face and that the whole world faces. And when you, you move from those kind of very small and limited areas where you can work together to global issues, global challenges where it's possible to work together that shows that trust is accumulated. Trust right. has built over time. And those who were most distrustful no longer see uh, the intentions of the other side as harmful. You sound like the time that you were there was so much fun. And there was so, it was like the golden era of, I remember even those years being crucial to the transition from real poverty to, you know, Vietnam becoming just, you could feel it. You could feel the transition moving quicker and quickly. And before we get to why you left or the mechanics of how you leave and, you know, ambassadors leaving, um, I want to ask you about that, uh, that carrier, that Navy carrier. I remember reading that there was a, a pretty high ranking Naval officer on that boat. Do you, do you recall that? Yeah, there was, well, there have been a number of powerful stories. Actually, it goes back to Pacific Partnership. There was the, the commanding officer of one of the ships in Pacific Partnership who was Ngai Mi'i Gopviet, whose family had left in 1975 and who, you know, like you, uh, you know, who'd become part of the military and then had become part of military leadership. In a way, only in America is that possible. Uh, so, and then, and then when it came to the aircraft carrier, there was also a high ranking official on that aircraft carrier. There were many people who had one tie or another to Vietnam. Some, I think there was somebody whose father had served in Vietnam. There was somebody else who had had some experience in Vietnam. And there was also, if I recall correctly, who served in the leadership, who was a part of that effort. So the ties are many. Yes. And if you think on the Vietnamese side, of course, the people that they're dealing with, some of them had fought against the United States. I, I, I worked regularly with a Vietnamese defense minister who told the story of how he met his wife. She'd picked shrapnel out of his hip. Well, who do you think put the shrapnel there? We did. The Americans did. And it was, you know, it took time to overcome distrust on both sides. And it took I think it takes face-to-face -face interaction to build trust. I don't think you can do it 
any, there's no, sh- I don't think there's any shortcut. Right. You have to do it human being by human being. It takes a lot of time. Speaking of human beings, what caused you to leave the post? So basically my tour was coming to an end. Um, I, I spent uh, my third year in, in, as ambassador, I was working for uh, President Trump. First two years, I was working for President Obama. Third year, I was working for President Trump. There were some areas where I didn't agree with what the Trump administration was doing. Actually, there were a number of areas, but one really hit close to home. The, the Trump administration was trying to accelerate the deportation of of Americans of Vietnamese origin who had de- uh, orders of deportation based on uh, crimes that it, in some places had occurred decades before. And so there was a guy named, just as an example, there was a guy named Tuan who when he'd come over in the, in this, I think in the late 70s, been young, he didn't speak English, he got involved with a gang, he'd stolen a car, he'd done time. And then he'd gotten his life together and he got married and had children and ran a grocery store and he had 50 people working for him at this grocery store and was doing very well. And the the uh, Justice Department came after him and said, we're deporting you back to Vietnam. Well, wow. back to, what do you mean back? It wasn't his country anymore. It was a completely different country. And he'd already done time, but they did. They deported him to the United to, from the United States which was his country, to Vietnam, which was clearly not his country anymore. And I just thought this was about as un-American as anything I could think of, because some of the people they were deporting were the children of American soldiers or people who had fought side side by side with us during the war. None of them were loyal to, to Hanoi. They all had come from South Vietnam. And I just thought these deportations, which... No other administration had tried to do in the Bush administration. George W. Bush administration had agreed with the Vietnamese government we would never do. The Trump administration was pursuing them. And I thought it was a racist policy. I thought if they were Norwegian, they wouldn't be deported. I thought it was the fact that they were Asian that, uh, that had persuaded a guy named Stephen Miller, who was a senior advisor to the president to go after them and kick them out of the country. Uh, So I objected in every form I could think of. I objected. I wrote letters to the secretary of state and to the uh, secretary of defense, the national security advisor. I wrote cables. I objected to this policy and I was continually instructed to carry it out anyway. And I even went back to the United States and I, I said, you know, President Trump is going to visit. His his visit could be ruined by pursuing this policy. And uh, no one would listen to me. And uh, I, uh, I think that maybe for that reason or maybe for other reasons, uh, I was asked to leave post before President Trump arrived. Even though I prepared the visit, the Vietnamese, I'd been working with the Vietnamese to try to make it a successful visit. I thought that was my duty. As ambassador, um, I was asked to leave six days before he landed. Wow! And so my family and I took off, and new ambassador came in, and uh, and I resigned. Uh, I I could no longer 
I felt I could no longer in good conscience work as a representative of the United States government if I so strongly disagreed with policies. And then a few months later, um, I wrote about it. I went public about this issue that I thought was being so badly mishandled by the Trump administration. And I objected publicly and the media picked up on this. And uh, I'm sure I didn't endear myself to anybody in the Trump administration by making this issue public. <laughs> but I didn't think people knew about it. And it turns out they didn't. This whole debate about whether to deport these people was taking place behind closed doors. And the media didn't know about it. And Vietnamese American leaders didn't know about it. And I thought it was important to bring it out into the light. And subsequently, there were several close congressional races in 2018, where there were a lot of uh, Vietnamese American constituents. And a number of the people who'd supported those deportation policies lost their posts. Uh, they weren't reelected. Now, is that because of the issue that I highlighted or is it something else? I don't know. But I think I thought at least it had finally gotten into the, the political realm, the public realm where I thought it belonged. And but I couldn't have done that if I were still a, a government servant. So I, I felt it was more important to do the right thing and speak out than than uh, to sort of hold on to my job. Now, sometimes we uh, from the outside uh, looking into politics, we kind of don't see the whole picture. Um, and when I hear something like that about the push to deport these Vietnamese back to or Vietnamese to Vietnam, I automatically start to think about like, what is the reason that the Trump administration was pushing for that? And I, I, like I said, when we're standing outside and we look in, we're, we're like, oh, well, who knows? Why would, but what, what was the real reason if they didn't make it a public thing or an optics thing? Why would that, what, 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 what's the benefit of just tossing a few people back to Vietnam? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. If, if you, Think rationally, people who had already served time for whatever crimes they'd committed. And these were, these were, we're not talking about murderers and rapists. We're talking about people who stole cars or were involved in gangs or got in trouble one way or another. But there were zealots in the administration who said to my face, they're all murderers and rapists. I knew this wasn't true because I'd looked into these cases and I knew they were charged with much lesser crimes. I could only conclude one thing. This was a racist policy. They would not be driving them out if they were white-skinned. They were driving them out because they were Viet, they were Ngoimi Igop Viet. And it was, it was a racially driven policy. And I, I think what makes America great is that we come from everywhere. And it's not lazy people who pick up and leave their homeland and go and try to create a new life for themselves and their, their children in a foreign land. It's people who have energy and drive and, and optimism about the future. That's what makes America great. And this idea that we're only great if we, you know, if, if America is only great if it's white and it looks like it did in the 1950s, I just think is wrong. And I couldn't support these. I couldn't support these these racially driven policies. Yeah, it's uh, 
a head scratcher to, you know, and I, I often think about why would you waste political capital in that way? You know, the Trump administration or, or anytime anybody does anything politically there, for me, there's gotta be logic be, there's gotta be numbers behind the logic on why you would do something. And that to me just, I mean, other than just being purely racist, it just makes no sense to, to pursue that with, in, you know, with that kind of energy. But if you look at a lot of the immigration policies that were pursued, particularly by Stephen Miller right. in the Trump administration, they, from a humanitarian standpoint, they make no sense whatsoever. The, from actually often from an electoral standpoint, they don't make much sense. So the only, the only interpretation I have is that they're racially driven and there were enough people who supported mm. these kind of racially driven immigration policies that the, somehow the Trump administration thought it could get a political boost from pursuing those policies. But if that's the case, I mean, I just think they're flat wrong. Yeah, they're, they're wrong morally, wrong in every single way. And I had to stick, you know, sticks in the spokes of that bicycle and do anything I could to slow it down. And that's what I did. And then I uh, resigned and went public. Interesting that you um, served in Vietnam during two president U.S. presidential visits, basically. I mean, six days before uh, President Trump got there, but. Can you tell me about these the mechanics of preparing or the sort of the ideation of a U.S. president arriving in Vietnam? And what do you have to do? What kind of planning or how does the conversation even start? Well, it's easier to tell that story about the Obama visit because the Obama visit was heavy on substance. It was all about how could we move this relationship forward? What are the steps we could take to to uh, to reconcile further, to deepen collaboration in multiple areas. And it's just what I've spent my entire career trying to do. And so I was, when I prepared for the Obama visit, I was completely aligned with what my bosses wanted to do, Secretary Kerry and President Obama. And every idea I would propose they would say, go for it. Let's see what we, if we get, get this one over the finish line. Or then the White House came up with ideas and they say, try this. And we would try it. And we, we signed multiple agreements. And, you know, we, we uh, were able to have uh, the, the president gave, a, I think, a, magni a magnificent speech in Hanoi. And he was able to interact with young people in Saigon. And there was so much that we accomplished in that visit because we prepared. I'm sorry, but the Trump administration was completely different about this. There was zero substance in any of the discussions that led up to the visit. It was only logistics. Now, he was coming for a different purpose. He was coming for an APEC summit, followed by a brief bilateral visit. But the main purpose was he was going to Danang for the APEC summit, and then he was going to stop in Hanoi uh, before going on to whatever his next uh, his his next. Uh, capital was. I think it was Manila after that. And but there was ex exceedingly little interest in substance, except for this issue of deportations. And then the other uh, interest of the president, which was bringing the trade deficit down. And I had been with uh, with uh, Prime Minister Fouke when he met President 
Trump in the White House, the president was quite focused on these two things, bringing the trade deficit to zero and the issue of deportations, but not too much interested in other things. And the other members of his cabinet were interested in the security relationship and how we could move forward more generally. Uh, but the president was really interested only in two things. And so the lead up to his visit um, was just basically logistics. Where is he going to stay and how are we going to keep him safe? Those things to me are pretty straightforward. And those aren't what makes a successful visit. What makes, what makes a successful visit is if you marry the rhetoric with the real substance of deepening a relationship, building a partnership. And that I had the privilege of doing when President Obama, when President Obama visited in 2016. Well, wow, that's such a valuable contrast to have lived through the watching the two um, sig significant gatherings of uh, the purpose of, of gathering for these two presidents um, says a lot about um, the impact that they had on, on society as, as, as a whole. And I want to lead into the, this idea of semantics and how we use our words because early um you mentioned in the book about bienhua the cemetery and this idea of hard meaning soft meaning these words that we use politically they make huge differences in the way we move um wills and we, we, we create volition in each other and yes goodwill uh for our partners and for our neighbors can you speak a little bit about that? Because it's such a, a brilliant and interesting uh, story. Um, again, I think all my listeners should really go out and, and get this book because it really gives us a, an insight on really subtle things that happen uh, in the uh, U.S.-Vietnam relations and, and how it's evolved. Well, I had learned about the importance of Bien Hoa when I visited Orange County. When I visited the center of uh, center of culture of the Vietnamese American community, and I learned that the reason Bien Hoa Cemetery mattered so much is that Southern soldiers had been buried there, and they weren't being honored properly, and Northern soldiers were being, you know, interred in graves and uh, graveyards that were then properly maintained and the Southern soldiers weren't. And this was hurtful to, to people in the Komdom Viet. And I, uh, I was puzzling over this and thinking, you know, how can I help? What can I do? And I had the visit of uh, the president of Harvard University, Drew Gilpin Faust. Now she was an expert on Civil War. She'd written extensively about the American Civil War. And she'd thought a lot about the issues of recovering from a civil war. And so when I presented this problem to her, I said, what can I do to help build trust in this area where there isn't a trust? She talked about semantics. She said, instead of talking about the dead with a capital T and a capital D, just refer to the fact that people who died are buried there. She said, this isn't about flags and symbols and honor. This is about the simple matter of, of uh, digging ditches so that water will flow away from the graves instead of into them and cutting tree roots so that the, the graves won't be 
upended. Um, and and I and so then I went to the officials, including the the chairman of Binzhong Province, and I said, chairman of the People's Committee of Binzhong Province or Binyong Province in the southern pronunciation, and I said, you know, I'm really not talking about symbols here. I'm not talking about flags. I just want this NGO, Vietnamese American NGO, to be able to dig ditches and to cut tree roots so that these graves won't float away. Very simple. And he said, let me see what I can do. And then, by then, uh, this was towards the end of my time. And, and then I left office and a Vietnamese American friend of mine who followed this very closely said, Ted, you know what's happened? They let them, they allowed the NGO to come in and dig ditches and cut tree roots. And there's no fanfare about it. It's just quiet, done quietly. So in, in my view, that was a, a triumph because no one lost face. There was no, uh, we didn't have to humiliate anybody on, on any side. It was, it was a simple matter of letting some practical things take place, digging ditches and cutting tree roots. And it was something that, in, in my view, moved reconciliation forward because those, you know, the, those, it's a very important Vietnamese cultural value. And it doesn't matter whether you're in the north, from the north or from the south, but you want the remains of your loved ones to be properly interred, properly buried, and properly respected. And it was, it was, and it was so it's understood whether you're from Hanoi or from Saigon, it's understood that that's a, a Vietnamese cultural value. And that was what was respected, this, this cultural value of, of, of honoring people who had died. And I, I, I felt it was a, a significant step, even though it may have been a, appeared to be a small one. And it's symbolic and representative of the way we as human beings can approach the relationships that we have with each other practical if we can just do yes. this in a practical and sort of redirect the semantics the semiotics of the way we see the world it could be a better place now all yes. of that being said there's something to be said about really greedy people and greedy parties i mean that that's yeah. a different conversation but for the most part i feel like conflicts across humankind have a lot to do with just a practical Let's just tend to the practical issues that we have amongst each other. And that many times is what just human beings need is just to, you know, tenderly be, uh, you know, reached out and, 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 and touch. What, what makes you, I, I, can I ask you a question? What, what do you think makes you sort of understand that? Um, other than you know this woman uh, giving you some some of that advice, but it sounds like you you have a deeper sort of uh, understanding. Uh, I'm you have a very empathetic side uh, to human beings, and where do you think that that comes from in your life? Well, I I guess I don't really know. Um, my mother is a very empathetic person, and you know so maybe. I picked up some of that from her, but what I always found 
as a diplomat was that when you dealt with people as human beings yes. and not as issues, that it was possible to make progress. And if you, you, you know, it's human beings who build trust, not, you don't, you know, build trust. You don't build trust in some abstract way. You build trust between humans who relate to each other as humans. And that is what has always given me the greatest satisfaction in about being a diplomat was this chance to connect with human beings and see if we couldn't figure out something together that might be helpful to other human beings. And, um, and I think that, you know, that seemed possible to me in Vietnam. It seemed like something from the moment I went there in the mid nineties until the moment I left as ambassador. And even since then, I felt that this was something very, that was very true in Vietnam that we could, we could work on challenges together if we could just connect, find a way to connect as human beings. I'd like to hear your opinion on this idea of polarization, both in the US and in the world at large because of social media and the way computers are programmed. I, I often, I keep pounding this question to everybody I run into. Do you think um, we're gonna recover from this one at one point are we going to just get burned out from all the polarization is it something that's a pattern in the the history of mankind or are we pretty screwed well we do seem to have uh different realities that are operating and you know in this country there used to be kind of one standard of truth to really simplify it but when walter cronkite said something on the evening news everybody took it as reality. In fact, when Walter Cronkite said we weren't winning the war in Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson decided, well, he'd lost public opinion and he didn't run for re-election. It was, he was that one announcer, one newscaster was so influential because he was credible. American people saw him as credible. They knew that, you know, if Walter Cronkite said it, he was, it was, <laughs> it was very likely to be true. Now we have all these different platforms and people tend to listen to the voices that they're used to listening to, the ones that they think are gonna share their views. Um, and they don't necessarily listen to the voices of people who don't have their views. And that is very troubling. It's very challenging to democracy. And we see democracy in retreat in a lot of parts of the world. Um, you know, I think United States democracy is facing a lot of challenges, but it's also true in Hungary and Poland and Venezuela and Myanmar and, and you know, uh, many other countries, even, even in countries that have, that have all of the mechanics of democracy, you see erosion in the quality of, of democracy. So it worries me a lot. I think... Um, I think it reconciliation starts by putting yourself in the shoes of the other person. And there's an old, old saying, you've got to walk a mile in another man's yes. moccasins in order to understand where he comes from. I think it's really important that we put ourselves in the minds of, of others and think about why they think the way they do. And that is what I always tried to do as a diplomat was try to, 
you know, dealing with Vietnamese leaders, for example, why are they thinking the way they are thinking? Why are they so obsessed with security, for example, and stability in society? Well, maybe it has something to do with Vietnam's history. The fact that there's been so much conflict and so much instability. And that would help me figure out ways that there might be a path forward. And I'd, I'd say that those lessons might be relevant even here at home. You know, if we're having a really hard time, Republicans and Democrats are having a really hard time understanding each other, speaking to each other. Maybe we need to put ourselves in the other person's shoes and try to think how that person thinks. Uh, but I don't pretend that's easy to do. I think it's very hard to do. And, and we do gravitate towards the, the polls because we gravitate, we gravitate towards voices that reflect our own thinking and not voices that reflect the thinking of people who differ very strongly from us. Before we jump into my special request uh, at the end here, I want to thank Ang Jin Hoi for making the introduction to us and, um, you know, setting up the dinner and, you know, meeting you. And uh, without members of our community like Jin Hoi, um, these wonderful uh, meetings wouldn't have happened. Jin Hoi la ban bè Ang. He's a fr good friend of mine. We met the first time I, I went to Little Saigon. Uh, six or seven years ago, and he's introduced me to so many other friends, and I'm very glad he introduced us, and I'm very grateful to him. And Ted, I'm so grateful for the time you've spent with me today. Um, I have a request, but if you can't do it, it's okay. Um, would you like to share a few Vietnamese words? Thật chán, tôi muốn nói cho em, tôi đã rất thích Nothing is impossible. Em không ngờ anh Ted nói tiếng Việt quá rành và anh chia sẻ những lời làm cho em cũng cảm động và em cảm ơn anh Ted đã dành rất là nhiều thời gian hôm nay với em và em hy vọng được gặp lại anh Ted một ngày rất là gần. Cảm ơn anh rất là nhiều. Anh cũng hy vọng gặp lại em và cảm ơn rất nhiều đã nói chuyện với anh hôm nay. Dạ. Em xin chào anh. Anh xin chào em. Xin cảm ơn. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trinh. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Thanks again for listening.